We are in Ecclesiastes 3. We are slowly walking through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of the more depressing books of the Bible. Uh, But the goal of it is to depress us into dependence upon God. Uh, it's, it's meant to give us a heavy dose of reality, uh, even those realities that are rather difficult to comprehend and deal with, even those realities that are, are difficult for us to acknowledge, um, that are rather depressing, but uh, they ultimately uh, lead us to hope in the God who saves and the God who is um, going to make all things New. And so we love the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 22 this morning. 3, 16 through 22. Uh, if, when you get there, you would stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 22. Let's listen to the word of God with reverence and with joy. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter, for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, with the words of my mouth... And the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, David Foster Wallace once said, Try to learn to let what is unfair teach you. Try to learn to let what is unfair teach you teach you. The idea is simple enough. Let the hard stuff, the, the, the stuff in life that you'd rather maybe avoid, the stuff in life that you'd rather ignore, let it teach you. Let that stuff become your teacher and you become its student. Because if you do, you will learn invaluable lessons, lessons that you would not otherwise learn. We see an example of this wisdom lived out in our text this morning. The preacher is letting what is unfair become his teacher and he its student. The first teacher is that of wickedness and injustice in the world. 
And the lesson that he learns from this teacher is to be comforted by the promise of God's final judgment at the end of the age. The second teacher that he learns from is that of death. And of course, the Bible would not say that death is unfair. It's the wages of sin. But it is, it is a problem for God's people, and we ought to acknowledge that. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 would even say that death is an enemy of God's people, one that will be defeated ultimately, but it is an enemy, a very present and real enemy nonetheless. It's a problem for us. And from this problem become teacher, the preacher learns the lesson of enjoying his work. And so this morning, we're going to join the preacher in becoming students of injustice and death, And we are going to try to learn the lessons he's learned and how we might apply them to our lives today. The the big idea that we're going to be exploring is that in view of injustice, in view of injustice, be comforted by the final judgment, and in view of death, rejoice in your work. In view of injustice, be comforted by the final judgment, and in view of death, rejoice in your work. And we're going to unpack that by looking at the complexities of injustice, the comfort of judgment, the certainty of death, and the celebration of work. First, the complexities of injustice. The preacher says in verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So you see, he's, he's making an observation here. He's looking at this life under the sun, at that which is observable in this fallen world, and he sees that there is injustice and wickedness all around us, which of course we know to be true. We live in a world wherein the rich get richer and the poor get poorer all the time, often due to the powerful manipulation and decisions of those who are rich. We live in a world wherein men, women, and children are kidnapped and subjected to forced labor and sex slavery. This this issue of human trafficking, it's horrendous. We live in a world of sweatshops and sexual abuse. We live in a world of abortion and murder. Injustice is all around us and it permeates the entirety of the globe. What the preacher is observing here goes beyond that. He's not just observing the the problem of injustice that exists in the world, but he's observing the the complexities of it. And that he observes that, that this wickedness, this injustice is even present in the places that justice and righteousness are supposed to be upheld. So for example, we not only live in a country, in a nation, wherein 50 million abortions have taken place since 1973. That's 50 million lives taken. That's an enormous injustice. But part of what is so grievous about that reality is that all of those abortions were permitted and sanctioned by the decisions made in Roe versus Wade in the the Supreme Court, the, the very highest court in our land. In the very place that justice ought to be upheld, in a court of law, in the very highest court in our nation, injustice and wickedness was permitted and sanctioned. What's worse is this is fairly characteristic. You could name a number of similar examples wherein the halls of justice 
The courts of the United States of America and justice and wickedness have been perpetuated. We've already named Roe versus Wade. And I angered some of you more liberal-minded people. But let's anger some of you conservative-minded people too. This is why a disproportionate amount of black men are in jail and in prisons all across our land. This is why women in our nation are often silenced in the public sphere rather than heard when they voice the issues of sexual abuse and sexual harassment that they have suffered at the hands of powerful men. This is why in, in, in nations, Christians in nations such as North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia, Christians are often arrested and put in prison simply for being Christians. These are a few examples. There are far more. Injustice is present even in the halls of justice. But we would be remiss if we didn't point out that injustice not only exists in the halls of justice, but also in the house of God. Notice the preacher says that wickedness is present also in the place of righteousness. In other words, even amongst the people of God, even amongst the church of Jesus Christ, there is wickedness and there is injustice. Even in the church, there is spiritual abuse, there is embezzlement, there is racism and ethnocentrism, there is wickedness and injustice. Of course, we just named a few moments ago that sexual abuse and harassment takes place within various settings, but perhaps what is most disturbing is the revelation of the seemingly systemic issues of of sexual abuse and harassment, even, even in several expressions in Christ's church. Early this past year, the Houston Chronicle released a series of articles revealing that in the last 20 years, there have been around 700 victims of sexual abuse and harassment in Southern Baptist churches across the United States. And that even some prominent leaders, some who are even presidents and seminary presidents, prominent leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention knew about these events knew about some of these events, and yet they still resisted reform. They still contributed to, to, to covering them up. They still didn't go public with the issue. Even in the place of righteousness, even in the house of God, there was injustice and wickedness. It is horrendous. So what are we to make of all this? What should we do and say and think in light of all this? Well, the the lesson that the preacher learns from this reality, from this observation, is to be comforted by the reality of the coming judgment. Look with me next at the comfort of judgment. The preacher says, starting in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter, for every work. So the observation in verse 16 is this, there's injustice everywhere, even in the places of justice and righteousness, this is obviously distressing, it's disturbing. And yet as verse 17 shows, we can take comfort in this, ultimately justice will be done. The final arbiter of justice and righteousness is not found in any earthly court, but in the court of heaven. It is the God of heaven. He is the ultimate judge. And he has planned a day wherein judgment he will, by his judgment, he will make everything right. He will give retribution for all the wrongs done, and he will restore all that is good in his creation. 
And as the Apostle Paul says in his sermon in Acts 17, 31, God has fixed a day. He has fixed a day. It is coming. It is a certainty. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance of it by raising him from the dead. There's a day coming wherein no longer will the killing of the unborn be permitted and tolerated or even practiced. There's a day coming where those subjected to slavery and abuse and harassment will be vindicated and their oppressors judged. There is a day coming wherein religious charlatans, pastors posing as men of God who abuse Christ's sheep or use Christ's sheep for financial gain will be judged and condemned. There is a day coming wherein all racism and ethnocentrism will be cleansed from the earth and those who, were, those who oppressed and mistreated minorities and peoples due to the color of their skin will suffer for eternity in the lake of fire. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. He's given us assurance of it by raising Christ from the dead. And now you might say, you see, this is part of what is wrong with Christianity. It's you believe that there's this final justice coming in the future, and because of that, you fail to seek and pursue justice in the here and now. Instead, you tolerate injustice and wickedness, or worse, you make peace with injustice and wickedness and oppression because you believe that there's a day where it's all going to be taken care of and you fail to take business in the here and now. Is that a fair criticism? It might be. Perhaps at times it might be. Especially in more recently formed Christian traditions in the West, this is somewhat common even. As we've already noted, not only does the church sometimes tolerate injustice, but sometimes she perpetuates it. But on the whole, considering the Christian tradition from the last 2,000 years, what you witness is more often than not a consistent and perpetual fight against the problem of injustice, a consistent and perpetual voice of speaking truth to power. You see a people who started hospitals, who started orphanages to care for the parentless and schools to educate the uneducated. You see a people who stood up to racial injustice in the civil rights movement and the apartheid. You see a people who consistently speak truth to power even when the, the nation sanctioned and permitted the killing of the unborn. And more could be said. There are indeed exceptions we discussed looking at verse 16, but on the whole, Christianity has pursued justice and fought against injustice consistently for the last 2,000 years. And it could even be argued that the emphasis and value placed on justice in Christianity is largely what has influenced and led to the emphasis and value placed on justice in our culture as a whole. However, here's the thing. One realistic look at the problem of injustice and wickedness in this world ought to lead us to this, this, just a great deal of sobriety regarding how effective we are in our fight against injustice and wickedness in this world. We ought to pursue justice. We ought to pursue righteousness. Yes and amen. The promise and hope of the resurrection calls and empowers us for that task. 
And yet on this side of glory, on this side of the final judgment, we will never rid the world of its wickedness and injustice entirely. As Jesus tells us in John 12, 8, the poor you will always have with you. There's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be oppression. There's always going to be the mistreatment of the poor. There's always going to be the oppression of certain demographics of people. We'll never create a true utopian society wherein there is true and full equality and justice for all. And if you ever came across such a perfect utopian society such as that, be assured of this, once you join it, you will ruin it. You see, what we desperately need is the God who is himself justice and righteousness to execute final judgment. We need him to give retribution to the wicked. We need him to restore and uphold righteousness in the earth. We need his final and ultimate judgment because only in his final and ultimate judgment will all wrongs be righted and all injustices cleansed from the earth. And don't you realize what a comfort it is to have his promise that that day is coming? This is an important point of application here. We ought to be comforted by the coming final judgment. Without the coming judgment, what comfort do you have in the face of gross injustice that you're powerless to stop? Without the coming judgment, what comfort do we have in light of the past injustices that we are powerless to reverse? Sure, maybe Roe versus Wade gets overturned at some point in the future. I sincerely hope and pray that it does, but that still won't stop abortions from happening. Not entirely. And what about the 50 million that have already taken place? We can't reverse those. We won't get justice for them. What hope of justice do we have apart from God's final judgment? Don't you see that there's a comfort that comes from knowing that he will right every wrong in the end, be comforted by the final judgment. That's what the preacher wants for you here. And also just want to say as another kind of point of application here, is that comfort shouldn't be the only result that comes from the promise of the coming judgment. You should also be sobered by it. Realize that the coming judgment isn't just for things and people out there. You yourself will one day face judgment. You will stand before the thrice holy God. You will stand before the throne of King Jesus, and you will give an account for your life. That should sober you. That should motivate you to not participate in the cause of the world's injustices. That should inspire us to participate in God's cause for justice in the world in order that the church might serve as a sign and a foretaste of the justice that is to come. That should prompt us to work with integrity and honor in our vocations. That we might witness to the watching world what God's new world to come will be like. It ought to provoke us to consider how we conduct ourselves in our homes, in our church, in our vocations, in our neighborhoods. We should be sobered by the coming judgment because judgment is coming for us all. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that, comes judgment. Which brings us to our next point, the certainty of death. 
pick it back up in verse 18. Here the preacher observes another problem, life under the sun. It's already noted the enormous problem of injustice and the complexities involved, but, but here he notes another problem, and he lets it become his teacher. He observes and notes the problem of death. As much as you might want to pretend that death is not a problem, as much as we might try to just say, you know, like we embrace it as just a natural part of life. I heard Oprah say something like that one time. We might try to live in denial of it even, kind of delegate it to the realms of hospitals and nursing homes, never slowing down to think about it or reflect on our own deaths. Yet it remains a problem, and it's one that is coming for us all. It's inevitably coming for you. You are going to die one day. One of my favorite Twitter accounts is this Twitter account that just once a day tweets and says, you're going to die someday. It's very sobering. You're going to die one day. And in that way, the preacher says that you are no different than an animal. You're no different than a beast. That's what he says. That's what he means to say when he says... um, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Now, when you see, when he says that we are but beasts, that we're just animals, he's not saying that humanity is just no different in any capacity from dogs or monkeys or cats or any other kind of animal. The preacher would indeed affirm the reality that humanity is made in the image of God. We are like divine self-portraits. We are like little mirrors that reflect the divine. Therefore, humanity is qualitatively different from the rest of the created order, dogs and monkeys included. Yet when it comes to the reality of death, we actually have no advantage over dogs or monkeys or birds or the rest of them. We're just the same. You might be familiar with the phrase, die like a dog. It's typically used when a person dies in a particularly demeaning or unpleasant way. Thomas Baker, he was a Methodist missionary in the mid-1800s. He was sent to Fiji to begin preaching the gospel and planting churches there. Well, in 1867, he touched the head of a tribal chief, which I guess is a big no-no. And he was killed and he was eaten by this cannibalistic tribe. We might say of him, he died like a dog. And yet, really what the preacher is saying here, what he would have us recognize is that whether you die by being eaten by cannibals or die in old age quietly in your beds, we all die like dogs. As he says here, alluding to Genesis 3.19, dogs were created from the dust, and when they die to dust, they return. And just so, the same fate awaits you and me. You and I will die like dogs. It is certain. And not only that, there's the certainty of death, but he also observes the kind of uncertainties 
surrounding death as well. He says in verse 21, in a very peculiar and unsettling phrase, he says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. That's in the Bible. Now understand what he's saying. He's not making a definitive theological claim. He's simply making an observation by experience. He's simply saying, hey, none of us knows by firsthand direct empirical evidence what happens to our spirits after we die. Of course, we, we know, we can tell that the preacher believes that we continue to exist in some form after death as he just appealed to the final judgment for comfort. And he even will go on in Ecclesiastes 12, 7 to say that the spirit, when you die, the spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay, but, but still... There's a lot of unknowns when it comes to death, aren't there? Especially at this point, the point that the, that the preacher was writing this, he didn't possess New Testament revelation. Christ hadn't come yet. He hadn't lived and died and rose yet. The apostles weren't born yet. They hadn't written the New Testament epistles yet. In light of this reality, it's this progressive revelation we have, the reality that we now possess the New Testament, what God has revealed therein. We know more about what happens to us after our bodies die and are buried in the ground. Christ has opened paradise for his people. Our bodies do indeed go into the ground, but for those of us who trust in Christ, our spirits immediately go into the presence of our God and Savior where we await the resurrection of the body and life in the age to come when Christ ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Yet the sort of general principle that the preacher tells us here, it still applies. There's still so much we don't know and so much that we don't comprehend about what happens to us after death. A lot of New Testament texts that tell us about heaven and life after death and the new heavens and the new earth and life after life after death are much like signposts pointing us into a fog. There's still so much we don't know. There's still a a cloud, a mist that that clothes our futures and our deaths. So what's left for us? In light of the certainty of death and the, uh, the uncertainties therein, how then shall we live? And look with me lastly at the celebration of work. He says, So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The preacher says that in light of the problem of death, in light of death's certainty, in light of the reality that we're all going to die like dogs... We should rejoice in our work because that is what God has given us to do during our time. He's saying death is coming, so seize the day. Carpe diem. Expend yourself and your energy and your life and the tasks and callings that God has given you while you have time. As a minor note of clarification here, he's not just talking about your nine to five. What, like what you do for a paycheck. That would most certainly be included here. But his concept of work here is, is more broad than that. It would also include putting your kids to bed at night, doing your laundry, cooking your meals, leading family worship and devotions around the dinner table, mowing your lawn, serving with hospitality and kids' ministry on Sunday. 
vacuuming your living room, sharing the gospel with your coworker, doing your homework, leading a city group, and along with all of that and more, working your nine-to-five job or whatever you do for a paycheck. He's basically offering the same counsel that we find in Proverbs 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Carp a diem, friends, expend yourself and your energy and your life on the work God has given you because death is coming. And I think Indy Wilson, he captures this sentiment very well in his book, wonderful book, Death by Living. Listen to what he says about this. He says, lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors. Where I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. You see, it, it may seem counterintuitive at first that the harshness of the reality of death ought to motivate us to rejoice and expend ourselves in our work. At first we may see the the certainty of death is actually a cause for kind of paralyzing despair. But when you realize how short your hevel of a life actually is, when you realize that death is coming Whether or not you enjoy your work and your years, when you realize that your lot in life and the work you've been given has actually been given to you by your creator God, doesn't that just lead you to conclude that it's better to rejoice in your work and in your lot in life? Isn't it just better that whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with all of your might? This is the preacher's wisdom. And it's wisdom that we would all do well to heed. And before we close, I want to just end with a few quick items regarding how we can actually enjoy our work. The reality is it's, you know, it's obviously not as simple as just like resolving to enjoy our work and then do with it, you know. We've actually got to fight to enjoy our work sometimes. It can be hard work to enjoy your work. So how can we actually grow in enjoying our work? The first just say, recognize work's limitations. First things first, we would do well to recognize work's limitations. And this kind of goes back to one of the items that we, we spent time on, discussed a few weeks ago. Your work is not what is going to give you ultimate significance and satisfaction. 
You know, most of our sins in this life, most of what leads us to heartbreak is trying to make good things God things, trying to make good things like job and finances and family and whatnot into God things, things from which we seek and to derive ultimate significance and satisfaction from, things that we're trying to make give us our identity. And that's actually a really quick way for you to let your job or your family or your finances make you miserable. If you're looking to them to give you, if you're expecting them to give you what only the infinitely glorious God can give you, significance and satisfaction, then they are going to fall woefully short, aren't they? They'll just constantly disappoint you and become a source of misery for you instead of an instrument of joy. And next, we would do well to have realistic expectations about our work. Here's the reality. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world. We live in a sin-cursed world wherein due to the sin of humanity, thorns and thistles have infested the ground. Those of you who garden know this well. But the thorns and thistles thing goes way beyond gardening and farming. It means that all of our work is going to contain frustrations and complexities and difficulties. A simple task is never just a simple task. Changing your oil, putting Ikea furniture together is never just changing your oil or putting Ikea furniture together. Putting your kids to bed at night. As Jim Gaffigan once said, he said, bedtime makes you realize how completely incapable you are of being in charge of another human being. (laughs) It's true. And you see, you have to have realistic expectations about all this. Your callings, your vocations, your work, and your toil is going to be hard. You are going to face frustrations and complexities and difficulties therein. Come to expect it or you're never going to enjoy it. And this is, this is very important for many of us in the room because many of us have been trained and formed by many modern technologies and, and iPhones and social media and all the rest of this to think that life should be easy. And there's very little that will have you more stressed out and anxious and expecting things to be easy only to have your hopes and your expectations disappointed and dashed at every turn. There have actually been some interesting Studies on this recently, wherein researchers have found that most people who are suffering from, from the all-dreaded burnout are suffering from burnout not necessarily because they work too much or they're too busy or they have too much on their plate. Instead, most people that suffer from burnout, they're doing so because they constantly, they're constantly stressed and anxious due to habitually having their, their uh, expectations disappointed and unmet. You've got to have this realistic expectation about the work of parenting, about the work of marriage, about the work that you've been given in your nine to five, about the work you've been given to do in hospitality ministry and kids ministry or whatever it is. Expect thorns and thistles. Expect to have frustrations and complexities and difficulties. It won't be easy, but you can still enjoy it if you have realistic expectations. And then lastly, remember Christ's coming. You know, the preacher didn't possess the knowledge that we possess on this side of the first coming of Jesus. But if the certainty of death 
ought to lead us to expend ourselves on and enjoy the work he's given us, how much more ought the certainty of eternal life? You see, because an essential part of enjoying and being energized in your work is locating your work in a purpose and goal much bigger than itself. If you see the end of your work as nothing more than momentary preoccupation or just a means to a paycheck, your enjoyment of it won't last long. It's got to be about something bigger, something much bigger, something eternal. Therefore, make the purpose and goal of your work, the work of raising children, the work of taking care of your home, the work of finishing your education, the work of sales and laying tile and accounting and caring, whatever it may be, Make the goal and the purpose of it all to glorify and make known the Son of God. The one who for our sakes came down from heaven and put on flesh. And for roughly 30 years, he actually worked and toiled in his vocation in obscurity. He swept floors and made meals and built furniture and gardened. And in, and in doing so, he dealt with all the frustrations, all the difficulties, all the thorns, all the thistles but he located his calling and his vocation in a much bigger purpose, you and your salvation. He came to give you eternal life, and the means through which he did that is that he lived the life that you and I should have lived. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die, and he did so in our place. He died like a dog. He died in the most degrading, most shameful way, taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve because of our wickedness and injustice and unrighteousness. And so that the final judgment that is to come that's already taken place for those of us who trust in Christ, it took place 2,000 years ago on that cross. And that's not all. He also rose again on the third day to reverse death's hold on us as his people. And because of that, we don't need to fear death. Who knows whether our spirits go upward or down into the earth? He does. Because he's gone before us and he's promised that he's going before us to prepare the way for us. And he also promised that one day the curse of death, the enemy, our enemy of death, will be fully and finally defeated and he will raise us up and give us glorified bodies like his own resurrected glorified body. The final judgment is coming and for those of us in Christ, it will be a day of reward and bliss. Indeed, we will die like dogs, but we will be raised like kings and queens. Reminds me of a story about this well-known missionary as we close, John G. Patton. That's him. He was epic, and he had an epic beard, and I love him. We briefly mentioned that Methodist missionary, Thomas Baker, being eaten by cannibals. John G. Patton, he was a, a Presbyterian minister working for the cause and, and mobilizing missions in his home church in Scotland. And there had been several missionaries that their uh, presbytery had sent to the islands right off the coast of Australia, which had faced pretty devastating results. Some had been chased off the islands, threatened to be killed, never to return. Others had been killed and eaten by cannibalistic tribes, and, and Patton began to sense this call to go himself. And so he eventually told the elders of the church that he sensed this call, that he wanted to go. 
Some of them strongly protested Patton's expressed desire there, and this argument ensued. And at one point, in the heat of this argument, one of the elders, a, a, a Mr. Dixon, he said to Patton, the cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! But to this, Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are now advanced in years, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see how the coming of Jesus and the promise of eternal life makes all the difference. It energizes you to expend yourself on the work he's given you. It inspires you to seize the day and the tasks he's laid before you. It makes you courageous in the face of death and full of vigor in the midst of life. And friends, the day is coming wherein Jesus will right all wrongs and he will judge the world in righteousness. He is coming to reverse death and to raise you up to eternal life with him. And because of that reality, we can and must live according to this closing exhortation from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time together. Would you seal this word upon our hearts as we come to the table and remind us that Christ has died the death that we deserve to die and that he's now risen and ascended and that one day when he returns, we will be made like him. We pray in his name. Amen.